hello, this is Bill, and this is Nonprofit Tangent, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 1. This episode, I'm going to be profiling an organization called Imani House. I met with their executive director and founder, Sister BC, who was wonderful and talked to me uh, for a long time, told me lots of great stories about the history of the organization, which started in the 1980s in Liberia, but is also... Uh, providing services to people in Brooklyn. So they do things both in Liberia and in Brooklyn uh, up to today. So, of course, with such uh, an interesting and unique uh, setup to the organization, I asked, how did this come about? And that really launched us into this wonderful conversation where I got to hear lots of different stories about the people and um, and also, you know, heartbreaking stories. Um, I don't want to give anything away, um, but the history of this organization is particularly unique, interesting, um, and as Sister BC said, the, the organization evolved organically, and so uh, it was really shaped by events on the ground in Liberia particularly. So with that, uh, here's the first part of the interview where um, Sister BC will talk about the kind of initial spark that, that uh, kicked off the organization, set it off on the path that it is on today, and a lot of the early work that they did in Liberia. In the second part of the interview, we'll get into talking more about um, Brooklyn and more contemporary um, history of the organization. Uh, I should also note that they are doing a fundraiser on Thursday, um, March 29th, 2018. So uh, you have an opportunity to support the organization, particularly if you like what you hear, and it's right here in Parksville, Brooklyn. Okay, so here's the first part of the interview with Sister BC of Imani House. Do you remember that first spark of where you had the idea to do this? Or We really have to go back further. Um, in 1982, um, my husband, I, and four children, we had a tragedy. And the tragedy was the loss of Imani, my daughter. And we lived in Miami, Florida, and we were traveling on vacation. And I went into labor. I was pregnant. We took the wrong direction, went to the wrong hospital, and we were turned away. Yeah. So by the time we got to the right hospital, we lost the child and it was life altering for me. Um, I can't say life had been easier for me. I came up in the seventies. I was a part of the radical movements, but it was easy for me in effect that I had never had a tragedy, a personal tragedy. Mm -hmm. It was other people's issues. Mm -hmm. And so I've always been an activist. I've always wanted to see, well, what can I do to help? You know, just tell me what to do. And at that point, I just gave up on America. And I convinced my husband um, to move with me to Africa. Um, we ended up in Liberia, mainly because it's very difficult to get visas to immigrate to Africa. But for those who know Liberia's history, Liberia is established by African-American. It's a closer connection to the United States. It definitely is. And so, and there's Maryland County and Virginia. Oh, really? I didn't <laughs> yes, know that. there is. Um, and so, 
Um, so we moved there and we thought we'd live happily ever after. And five years later, the war broke out. And so we had... You, and just to remind me, uh, what year was that? We went in 85 and the war broke out in 1990. Okay. You need to. Um, when the war broke out in, eight, in 1990, we had to make the decision, do we go back, you know, um, as much as I dislike America, or do we stay here? Mm-hmm. Um, and we stayed. We stayed for seven years. Uh, the most horrifying experience anyone ever wants to face. Um, you know, uh, it, w- it was very difficult. And, and I am doing a book. I'll tell you more about that later. Um, yes. Um, but the fact is, that's how Imani House came to life. During, when you asked what was the spark, we were already trying to do nonprofit work, but mm-hmm. very minimal because we didn't have money. And we were a bit naive to think that we could just jump over there and help. Um, and so he had a job. I was teaching. Um, my children were in the school that I was teaching in. So I could keep an eye on them. And things were just swimming, you know. And we were not fully accepted, but we were home. And then this war breaks out. Um, and and you, you started the nonprofit before the war started? Probably? Yes. Okay. As soon as I got there, I incorporated as a nonprofit. Okay. As soon as we arrived, because our plan was to open a school for the um, really impoverished Liberian students. Mm-hmm. And it was like an aha moment to realize, how are you going to support your school? Mm-hmm. We did have money left over from our business, but it was like we, we need people to pay something. Mm-hmm. And it was impossible. People did not have money to pay. Mm-hmm. Um, I got invited to go work at a school and I took the position and it, it was it was worth taking because I needed to get to know more about Liberians. Had we isolated ourselves, we would never have known the ins and outs of Liberian society right. at all levels. So we started it in 1986, and by 1990, when the war broke out and we made the decision to stay, um, we just began doing relief. We came, I came back here to the United States several times trying to do anti-war, um, work with some anti-war groups. Um, the United States and the African-American community here just was not interested in helping to stop the war. And we could see it escalating. I mean, we were sitting there watching it. Um, You had Charles Taylor and you had another man called Prince Johnson and you had the president. So here we are in um, July of 1990, the war hits the Capitol. And by September, the president is dead. July, August, September is two months. It could have ended right there, but it didn't. It continued and continued and continued. There was no intervention and a famine broke out. Um, I traveled back here. I shipped in two containers of food, clothing, medicine, anything I'd get my hand, toys for the kids. It was devastating. <laughs> and it was growing up because I think we're a bit spoiled. Even if we grow up here impoverished, there's nothing like poverty over there. Um, so how did that change the work that you were doing? Or did you continue to try to support a school or did it expand your efforts or it expanded our efforts and it redirected our efforts because for that phase between 1990 and maybe 1992 most of our efforts were relief so we would work with UNHCR to distribute pots and pans and 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 buckets we would um, find UNICEF or other groups to help us put in wells mostly where the displaced were. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a piece of land, five acres. There we began to treat people. The, the United Nations gave us a tent. And so we began to treat people who lived in the displaced camp. There should have been 10,000, but I don't remember it being that many. 
um, and we would treat them. They got the pots and pans. They'd get the medicine. And then we got a small grant from locally from the United Nations to create a program to teach people um, urban urban agriculture because people were starving. Mm-hmm. They were a little past famine at that point, but they weren't in their homes, so they couldn't do their farms. I'm talking in general. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they couldn't do their farms, and they needed to do backyard-type gardening. And so we got a grant for that. We got a grant to do the adult literacy since they were sitting. Let's get the women in here and teach them to read. And if anybody is hurt, we'll um, also help you with a nurse. I hired a nurse. Well, I got a volunteer nurse. I actually didn't have any money. Hmm. Um, yeah. And then the, um, so we had a building program. I mean, I am very multitask, not just mentally. People think I'm a little weird, but it's like, oh, there's a problem over there. I'm going to put that fire out. Oh, wait a minute. There's one over here. I'm going to put that one out too. And You're good at whack-a-mole. Um, yeah, there you go. I'm going to whack-a-mole. So it's, 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 Ibani House evolved organically. It was mm-hmm. like, you know, you can't have these people living in. They don't have a bucket. To, we put a well in. They don't have a bucket to put the water in. That's ridiculous. Right. And quite frankly, the international agencies don't seem to really care. Um, UNHCR gave us like, I don't know, 200, 500 boxes or whatever. And we said, there's so many more people. They said, well, you just give it to the first ones that come. And so we got some volunteers and we just divided everything and everybody got something that way, you know, so it it felt more equitable. And so I thought, because my, my, my nonprofit was going to be adult literacy and maybe a little sustainable agriculture. Mm -hmm. When I saw what the international groups were doing, when you asked the spark and I didn't think about, that's when the spark lit. It was like, you know what? I can do this myself. I I can do this better. And um, that's how I got involved. I never wanted to do all this work. But, yeah. No one else was doing it. Not really fairly. They were just paying themselves. When the worst part of the war was the beginning, when we had the famine for about six months. Mm -hmm. And we used to have this guy from UNICEF who would fly in on a helicopter and come into the clinic. Well, I ended up working in a clinic. It's a long story. Helping in a clinic, and that became more stationary in terms of what I was doing during the war. I'd work in that clinic. Um, I took it over like I was the director of the children's ward. And we would try to save children who were starved, suffering from diseases caused by starvation, which includes the swollen stomach. I don't know if you've ever mm-hmm. seen it. Sure. They had a lot of sores on them. They were covered in lice. They were Many had been abandoned. Many had been abandoned on the street. Um, we, I did that. My husband had to stay in because it was so dangerous. Um, and I would go to the clinic because it's walking distance from where we lived. And I would do that. Um, when it got a lot freer, that's when we would do the pickup and picking up people when it got a little more free. And then finally, um, we had to cancel the van, the pickup because the soldiers were taking them. Um, Taking the van. Taking all the cars. There was no cars on the road after a while. Nothing. It, it really turned into chaos. It turned into huge chaos. Like I said, the embassy, when we wanted to get out, weren't willing. Um, they wanted us to get out before then. Um, and so, you know, we just stayed for seven years. And um, from the clinic, it was a private clinic. So once the, the, the major part of the beginning crisis was over, um, we had all these children who had been abandoned, about 30. And so we found an abandoned house because all the expats had left. And those homes were right near where I live. And so we just went in one, took it over, and cleaned it up and put these children in, 30 kids. You know, and I have 
documentation of everything. I have pictures. And then I would come back and forth and do fundraising and say, you know, let's have a, a shipment drive, a, a sunshine drive for these kids in Liberia. And people would give stuff. And then we would ship, ship it over there and distribute it. And I had the construction program to build chicken houses for the displaced, to teach them how. And so what I did was I built the chicken houses for the displaced, but I also built a chicken house that I turned into a clinic. And with a thatch roof. And the home the children lived in was the old-fashioned mud house when we moved away from the fancy house. You're still talking about the early 90s at this point. Yeah, I'm still in Liberia. So, um, and you had 30, about 30 children that were kind of abandoned in mm-hmm. that hospital that you now are uh, doing everything you can to take care of. It's We're now in the 2018. Do you remain in touch with any of those children? Uh, do you know, have you been um, able to keep in touch with any of them? Only a couple of them. Okay. Only a couple of them. I know one joined one of the rebel leaders and he died. Um, the others we raised to adulthood, and so we hear from them now and then. I don't think they still, as adults, get what happened to them. Mm-hmm. Some of them actually, one of them actually came off that survived, and that's another story because he actually died. And I learned to do mouth-to-mouth right there on the spot, um, and we were able to save him. But he doesn't know that he was picked up from one of the rebel leaders' bases. The Prince Prince Johnson was the chief adversary of Charles Taylor. Mm-hmm. They began together and then they split. And so they were fighting each other. But what Prince Johnson did is he op- he had a base, which he took over a piece of land. And um, he opened it to all the starving children, not their parents, just the children. But he didn't have any medical facilities there. And so I would leave the clinic. When I heard about it, I would borrow a car leave the clinic and go with a doctor or a a medical student over to the base. And what we would do would show them how to fix certain food for the kids. And we would pick up the sick ones, sick ones. We didn't meet him there. Um, But I could say it was a little bit dangerous going there. They claimed that he was using the children as human shields. I didn't believe that. He's, he's different and, I don't want to call him crazy, but he's he's weird. But at the same time, I don't think he has a heart to hurt children. Okay. Yeah. So he um he had all these children there. One of the kids that I was talking about who actually passed away from this diarrhea, um, he is still alive. He works for the police now. Wait, he's, when you when you say passed away, he you he, he, died. he died and you brought him back through mouth to mouth. Yes. Okay. Yes, and the doctors helped me after I brought did the mouth to mouth. They helped. Okay. part of my interview with Sister BC in a moment, but I just wanted to tell you, if you like this kind of podcast, stories from nonprofit leaders about the organizations that they run uh, and volunteers talking about the people that they have uh, served and helped, uh, you can find so many more great stories in season one. Um, I did six interviews in uh, three episodes. And we'll have new episodes coming out soon. And to learn about both those past episodes and future episodes, I suggest you go to Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, as well as our website, nonprofittangent.com. Check out the old episodes and stay tuned for new episodes. Okay, here is the second half of my interview with Sister BC. (music) 
that point was pretty much in Liberia. When did you kind of expand to Brooklyn? Well, in I was coming back and forth from okay. 1990. In 1993, I rented this office that we're sitting in. We, I really wanted them to do something in New York to help New York. Our incorporation from the very beginning said New York and Liberia because I'm from Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. I grew up, I'm raised in Brooklyn, and I'm and it's dear to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I thought that they would do some work in Brooklyn in 93. I continued my anti-war activism, um, trying to get groups to go along with me. And so it nothing was working. So in 1994, my last trip, I decided I wasn't coming back again. I would just stay in Liberia. Okay. And so I did not come until... In 1996, April of 1996, Charles Taylor again attacked the city. There were skirmishes all along. We were mugged and robbed and all kinds of stuff. But it wasn't like the heavy, heavy bombing on our homes like it had been earlier. Um, And so in 1996, it was an all-out attack on the city. It was very, very difficult for anybody. Um, And so that was the point where I finally had to cry uncle. And after five or six days of being barricaded in our home, um, the embassy this time did send cars for Americans. Mm -hmm. And the car was passing my house because we had no relationship with the embassy. So they didn't even know we were there. And they were passing our house. And I just went down to the truck and asked, are you picking up American citizens? I'm going to start crying. Um, And um, the guy said yes, and I got the children together. And I told him, I'm not going. I'm staying. You just take my kids. They'll go to my mother. And he said, I'll wait for you. And when he said, I'll wait for you, it was like, I just said, I'm not going. And I just said, I just turned around and went and got my things, and I left too. And so it was the um, five kids and myself. My husband worked for the UN, so he was stuck in town. We didn't know where he was. Um, some of the soldiers were actually attacking the embassy, trying to get to the Liberians who were seeking refuge there. Um, it was it was bad. That was probably the worst attack. And I, I could see the difference. And so it was like, no, the kids, this has been going on for seven years. You imagine a child who's like 11 years old. Now they're 17. It's just not fair. And so I did come with them. And... Um, the rest is history. Charles Taylor became president, et cetera, et cetera. I refused to be there while he was president. And so I stayed here for a while. I did go back. Um, we kept the clinic open because we, we had a clinic and adult literacy program by then. We kept that going. We began to raise funds. I got back here in 1997. I came into this office. The rent was three years in arrears. <laughs> there was no money. And so there's a lot of miracles that go on with the kind of work I do. There's absolutely a lot of miracles. Um, I don't know how we did it, but small grants. I had a big fundraiser the first year I was back. Um, but the little bit of money we got, we, we paid the rent off because it was three twenty five, and we paid the rent off. And um, then the cheapest thing I could do was to do adult literacy. I'm a, a literacy trainer. Mm-hmm. And so somebody from Columbia University, which is me and her, we brought people into this space and we taught them to read and write or speak English. And that began to expand until um, one day we ended up in a church at the clock building right down the street, and they gave us a space, mm-hmm. and we have um, 125 or more community volunteers, like yourself, who join us to teach reading, writing, English, and GED. 
and many, many of our students have gotten GED, gone on to higher education. And this is a program that has been ongoing since... This has been ongoing since 1997, since I returned. The other program that I could do with no money was a food pantry. So none of the furniture that you're looking at was here at that time. And so we would just, every Wednesday, we'd shut the place down and we'd just fill all these bags with food, volunteers, and we'd have people waiting outside for food. And so we did that for 14 years until the city collapsed in 2008 and then began to give us grief. And we weren't being paid to do it. We just did it. You know, they'd give us the food. So we have a basement and the food would be in the basement and we would just bring in volunteers and pack it all up. So I started that in probably late 97 or 98 and ran that until 2008 to do the numbers on it. That went really well. Then um, I, the same time, we start, it was all in this office, mind you, in 97, 98. Everything was here. I decided I'm going to have to say, I I do love the office because it just definitely has that sort of like, (laughs) you can see in a really good way and really interesting. It's it's got a lot of character. I mean, I was, I was looking at all the the degrees you have here and the pictures and it's just uh, the office has a lot of really good character. (laughs) That's a good word for it. (laughs) Okay. For me, it's good. I mean, it's cluttered, um, but it's full of history. Yeah, oh, you could definitely, you could definitely feel and, and see that. So um, we ended up, because I decided, okay, so we now have the food pantry. Mm-hmm. Uh, 1990, late 97, we have the adult literacy, and it's all in this space, but we would stagger it. And I decided, okay, we could do something with kids. So during the summer, we brought kids in, and we did a summer camp. And I kept doing that, and finally the government um, gave me a small grant, and I did it in a center, and then I put it in a school, and now we have a larger program in a school. At that time, we had about 30 kids. Mm-hmm. Um, now we have 140 kids. I had a teenage program where I worked with teenagers. It was called um, Building Bridges, Bias, Bias Prevention and Awareness. Mm-hmm. Um, so now we have the, these programs, and I'm looking, it's 98, and I'm looking at Liberia, and um I'm worried because we have no money, but then little money begins to trickle in from here and there, and the staff is still working on the shoestring, but they're receiving small stipends, and we ran it like that for a few years, and then we got larger, a little bit larger grants, so everything was going okay, and in 2014, Ebola came. Ebola struck Liberia. so they called me. I heard about it on the radio. As soon as I heard it, on, on 1010 Winds, in fact, I said, oh, my God, we're done because the country is so dirty. When I say dirty, um, the children benefit because they, they found um, that children who get to move around in natural environments really do build up a lot of resistance. So the people are very strong. Um, but the issue was we shake hands, we kiss, we touch our dead. All of those things you can't do with Ebola. And so it just began to devastate the country and it ran into the community where we were. And before it got there, I asked the clinic to close. My husband was retired, so he was there at that time. And I said, just close it. I want everybody to go home and take care of your family. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and they refused to 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 close. And I said, oh, my God, everybody else is closing. All the others were running away. They were afraid of Ebola. And you should be. Um, and so what they did was 
we talked to a group called Plenty who had come to Liberia, who was always helping Liberia and me um, learn how to write grants and different things. And they sent me $1,100 and I sent it over there. And they bought rain suits and goggles, construction goggles and construction masks mm-hmm. and shower caps. And that's what they worked in. And they kept that clinic open. Everybody didn't have Ebola. Right. And I think, yeah, I think that people forget, you know, you need clinics. There's this, there's, there's sure. pregnant women, there's sick people, there's respiratory, malaria, all of those things were still going on. Of course. We started getting grants from Global Giving. Um, we raised a lot of money. So for us, we had never seen $100,000. <laughs> and then um, I got a call in September um, that one of our staff was sick. And what he had done, because he didn't get sick in the clinic, we had purchased um, thermometers. What do you call it? Thermometers? Okay. You don't touch the person. You Mm -hmm. literally don't touch them. Everybody's covered from head to toe. Um, The people, if they have a fever, they go to a triage area that we had built. They wear masks. So you're not really touching them. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we send them to MSF for investigation. Right, MSF we, is um, Medicine Sans Frontier. Oh, of course, yeah, Doctors, yeah. Doctors Without, Without Borders. borders. Yeah. yeah, and we sent them there to them, and they would test them, um, and that way, you know, they would know if they had it or not. Um, but we were safe. And then this guy who's who's working in the clinic as a, a registrar, he takes the money, and maybe he might take someone's blood pressure. He's parading as a doctor in his community, and so when one of his neighbors got sick, he goes and he takes their temperature. So when he started getting sick, everybody's now like, it's like the vampire or the, the, the you know, something, you you know, the, the zombies. And you're afraid of anybody that gets a fever. Sure. Um, and so he goes and, 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 and he, he really was sick with malaria, with um, Ebola. Ebola. And the, the community, my husband was still there. They kept checking on him. What's going on? Are you coming back to work? You have a fever. It's very suspicious. The, the neighbors had started to... Oh, because like, he doesn't want to say anything he doesn't, to you. He doesn't want anybody to know he has he So he has knows Ebola. he probably has Ebola. He's refusing to accept it. He really won't accept it. Malaria feels just like it. Okay. Yeah. So he's refusing to accept it, and he's trying to work with it. We decided after a point, because neighbors began to call the clinic, and we decided at that point he should not come back. He did come back, however, before we made the decision, and he infected his coworker. And both of them died in September. Oh. Yeah, I almost had a nervous breakdown. I ended up with a very, very bad case of vertigo. Mm-hmm. Ended up in Methodist Hospital. It was pretty extreme. It was pretty extreme. Because we didn't know if everybody was going to die. Because here we are on the phone with the staff. And it's like, what do we do? What do we do? They all rushed over to MSF. MSF said, no, we can't. We'll, if we take you in here, we, if we let you through this gate, you're worse off than if you stay outside this gate. Because inside this gate is Ebola. We know it's Ebola. So they would um, try to triage people, like, what are your symptoms? And they didn't have any symptoms. They just didn't want to get it. And that's when we, um, we got in touch with the Ministry of Health, which we had to do if, if, if health workers die. Um, a lot of health workers died, even MSF. Um, um, Doctors Without Borders lost mm-hmm. health workers. Um, and so we had to report it. They quarantined the staff. They quarantined um, the clinic for 21 days. Because that's what, you know, CDC said should be done. And we um, cleaned the clinic and everything. And then they insisted on going back. And people were still running away from clinics. And 
So the clinic intake was very small because it just, it hit Liberia like a tornado. That's the only thing I could compare it to. And then it was just sucking people up. You know, people were dying in taxis Mm -hmm. thinking because when you have malaria in Africa, you continue to work. You need the money. I did it. You keep working unless it really just knocks you off your feet. You move like you move with the flu. And people just like, no, I don't have, I don't have Ebola. I have, I have malaria. And they just would not, not listen. Um, so that was a big tragedy and a big bend in the road for us. Um, but the clinic is reopened. Um, we were ostracized for a minute over here. I was due to go on a radio program to talk about Ebola. And they said, we need to know that you don't have Ebola before you come down to this TV station. It wasn't radio, it was TV. Right. And that's, and had you even been to Liberia? Just be, or is it just because your organization is connected? Working with Liberians. That's it. Now, my husband had. He right. came. Um, he came. And some of the comments were really nasty. They did interviews with him. And some of the comments were really nasty. Why don't you take your Ebola self back to Africa? Park Slope. <laughs> so they just did not. They were so afraid of it. They just couldn't understand it here. And they, nobody wanted to catch it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. So things have really bounced back since the... Oh, since, since the Ebola. Ebola, yes. It's just financially, everybody was interested in helping us during Ebola. So we've got to find ways to raise funds ourselves now. Mm. So we serve, before the Ebola, we served about 17,000 at that clinic a year. Um, now we serve about 14,000 wow. a That's year. a lot of people. It's a lot of people. It's a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And we have the um, health, public health, which is the manual mm-hmm. trainings that we do. We're doing 500 women to be trained in that manual, and we're expecting to certify about 100 of them as having completed the manual, and hopefully they will take the information back to their communities. Mm -hmm. Um, We did a lot of that during the war, teaching people how to make oral rehydration solution, for instance, when a child gets diarrhea. We had no doctors. We had no ambulances. Nobody did. And so here your child is sick at night, and you, you know, you're already malnourished. And we taught people how to make the ORS. We had big workshops and we made like community members who could take that information back to their communities. And we did hear that a couple of them saved that lead person who was smart enough to learn it well, mm-hmm. saved some children. That's great. By that. And that was very ingratiating for me. Very made me feel good. Right. Yeah. So now you are turning to a new fundraising effort coming up uh, here at the end of March. Yes. Because we deal with health and wellness, and I have a lot of energy, so where do I turn when I'm not working? I dance. Okay. And so what we have coming up now is Let's Dance. Um, We're going to have like some demonstrations. I believe Crunch Gym is going to send someone over to talk about healthy exercising, etc. But mainly it's just to come out and have fun. And hopefully we're partnering with um, King's Beer Hall on Warren Mm -hmm. between um, 4th and 5th. And we're using that space. I just think we're going to have a ball, you know. So the whole area is, is invited. It's retro and contemporary music. It, it'll be a lot of fun. People need to have fun, especially now. You know, I've been through to a few dances and I just feel like this, this is fun. We're not going to make <laughs> the big dinner forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000. We'll probably make a couple of thousand. But you know what? Let people come out and have fun. There you go. We need to have fun. Um, yeah. The other project that we have is our um, Walk to Lift. And, um, you know, that's every year. The dance is going to be ongoing, so it doesn't matter the date. This one is the twenty, the 26th of March. 
Thursday, but we're going to have it every year. So we'll keep people up to date on when, when it's happening. We're in our sixth year of Walk to Live. And Walk to Live is really kind of a self-empowerment thing where you can walk with your children and families. So it's geared to children, families, and community members who come out and walk the whole Prospect Park. Then we have a big party and we have entertainment, we have dancers and music and games and prizes and raffles and everything until I, until I wear out about 3.30. <laughs> it raises nothing. So it's really to bring community awareness to helping and save your own life. Well, hey, that's really important. When is that? When is what month is that? Usually? That's going to be that's in June, and that's the June, the first Saturday in June. So it's June second this year. Okay. And everybody's welcome. It's just open. It's not like you have to pay or anything right. to, to deal with Prospect Park. It's over at the Grecian Shelter on the other side of the park, and it's it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. First off, I just want to say that Sister BC did not get a chance to talk about everything that the organization does, certainly. Um, so check out uh, my website, nonprofittangent.com, and on the, um, the posting for this episode are links to all kinds of sites and videos uh, to learn more about the organization, the things that we didn't get to cover in this interview. So secondly, I want to thank Sister BC for taking so much time to answer all of my questions um, and really just weaving a wonderful story about the history of this organization. So check them out, support them on the 29th, um, and I look forward to uh, bringing you an ex the next interview uh, soon, very soon. Because I'm a little too old, I think, um, to think about starting somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And this is my community. Everybody knows me. I didn't mean to, me. Mm -hmm, you yeah. being too old. I just, I, no, I agree. I'm, I'm understanding <laughs> you. Yeah, I meant, <laughs> no, I, when I said it, I said, don't say that. <laughs> just say I'm older now. 